We are looking at chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. And we've we've done the first four paragraphs. And I'm going to read paragraph 5. You'll see it in a minute, but here's what it says. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Amen. That is great stuff. Now, this is the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing the divines mention is what theologians refer to. All right. Go to the next. I just read that. Go to the next slide. Okay, thank you. Uh, so I'll say Chuck, and you'll, you'll hit me next slide. Thank you, Chuck. First thing we read is that Christ offered up perfect obedience to God. Theologians refer to this as the active obedience of Christ. Uh, it was his actually fulfilling the law. And so his work of redeeming us did not begin on Calvary. It began in the Bethlehem manger. In his incarnate state, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. Uh, you think of the statement of Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's regarding Adam, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That that, that Greek term for made righteous has the, 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 the connotation of established. It doesn't mean that we become righteous, but we're designated as righteous. And so this is the structure, the covenantal structure of history. Uh, there's a first Adam, there's a second Adam. And Adam fell by his disobedience, we were made sinners. But by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Uh, now Christ is righteous in his being. He's unstained by the fall. And, 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 but he also becomes man and actually accomplishes a legal righteousness that he will be able to bestow on those who are in, who have faith in him. And again, we refer to this as his active obedience. Uh, sometimes the term is his general obedience. Uh, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. Chad Van Dixford says, yes, Christ was tempted like other people, but he did not fall to temptation, both because of who he was, and we've already seen the divines, I think, very in, 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 in wisely emphasize, but he was also filled with the Spirit beyond all measure. Uh, and he's the second Adam because he keeps the covenant of works that Adam uh, broke. Okay, next slide, please, Chuck. Thank you. Uh, and then he sacrificed himself. And that's going to be a lot of stuff because you think of the importance of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Is it, uh, Sunday night I was preaching from uh, Second Chronicles and we saw the sin offering being made. And I pointed out how the Old Testament provides a theological dictionary for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all those lambs were being slain. By the way, the Bible tells us, uh, Hebrews 10 tells us, that the Jewish people knew they were not being atoned for by animals. They always knew the animals were stand-ins. And they were stand-ins for the Lamb of God. He has no sins of his own for which to pay. 
So, he's, so, so therefore, when he makes a sacrifice, who is it for? Not his own sins. You think of how Aaron, on the Day of Atonement, he, had to, he, had, he slew a, 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 a lamb. I can't remember if it's a bull or a lamb. I think it's a lamb. Before he went and did his work, he had to make a sacrifice for his own sins. Uh, Jesus does not have a sacrifice to make for his own sins. So who is his sacrifice for? For somebody else, it is for us. Uh, and in his sacrifice, he pays our debt of sin. And, and the reason it's efficacious is on the one hand because God, and the, the book of Hebrews emphasizes this, God appointed him to that work. And so this one person was appointed, and he was equipped to do so by his divine nature, by the fullness of the Holy Spirit, by which he kept the law. And so God appointed him to the work, and God receives the work from him, but also because of the infinite value of his life. And so Jesus dies in our place. How can one man die for the many? Because that, well, A, he's the, partly because he's the covenant head. He's appointed to it by the Father and because he is the Son of God. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn says, one man finally came into the world to obey the Father. Here's the first man who did not need to die. And yet the very spotlessness and perfection of our Lord was the one thing that qualified him to die on our behalf. Now, the, 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 the paragraph says, Christ sacrificed himself through the Spirit. And again, the writer of Hebrews, and of course Hebrews is one of our chief theological sources for understanding the atonement. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, emphasizes that he, he, he made his sacrifice through the Spirit. Now, now, what does that mean? Well, it certainly means that he was upheld by the Spirit. He was aided by the Spirit. But he's also going to say, because it, it wasn't just a bodily sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice was spiritual on his own behalf, and therefore it have a, has an efficacy in our lives spiritually. He says, he, because he made a spiritual sacrifice, he is able to cleanse our consciences from... Uh, from uh, I have the verse here? from dead works to serve the living God. And so one of the effects of Christ's death is the cleansing of our consciences. On, on, I think the next slide I'm going to talk about the doctrine of expiation. But it's one of those theological terms regarding the death of Christ that I think needs to be recovered in terms of the frequency which we think about it. One effect of Christ's sacrifice for us, because it was a spiritual sacrifice, is that he actually removes the stain of sin from our consciences. And so a Christian has every right, in fact should, live free from guilt. If you're really a sensitive soul, you realize you've said terrible things, you've done terrible things. You really have, I was an adult convert, I'm keenly aware. Of, 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 the, of the sinfulness of my sins. So why am I not burdened? Because there's actually a work of the Spirit on our spirits corresponding to his sacrifice to actually cleanse the conscience. So one effect of his death for us is that we live without a sense of the curse of sin. Uh, now his, sacrif- his sacrificial death was offered to the Father, the divine say. Now, uh, if you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who's read the or seen the movie? No, no, no. We'll do the book. Who's read the book? 
Now, who's just seen the movie? We want to shame you. Oh, Brendan. Man, your kids are not old enough. You'll read it. I read Narnia for the first time aloud to my children on Lord's Day afternoons. Those are really sweet times. And, uh, and you may realize that C.S. Lewis has it wrong. He's a great Christian, but not a great, trust me, he's not a great theologian. He's a smart guy. Um, and in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to whom, to, to, to whom is Aslan's death given? The White Witch. Now, this would be the mousetrap theory common in the early church. I'm sorry to say it's Augustine's. We hate to, we love Augustine. Augustine's doctrine of the atonement was that Christ tricked Satan and Satan got his victory, but he swallowed, it was, but it was a mousetrap. And he took the cheese and it fell upon him. He undid his kingdom. I was talking to my older son, Matthew, who in his spare time in law school reads the, theology and he went through a Luther project and this summer he was doing an Augustine project. He calls me and goes, you know, dad, Augustine's kind of messed up on justification, isn't he? I'm going, Yes, he is. It sure makes you appreciate John Calvin, who is not messed up on it. But it's important for us to realize that Jesus' death was offered to the justice of the Father. Satan does not actually own us. He has a usurped claim to us. He has an effective lordship over us, but never a lordship by right. Christ's death is not offered to Satan. It was offered to the just, the offended justice of, of the holy God. And it satisfies us. We'll see the next slide. Now, I'll go back. I'm not done yet. I've got a little bit more. Now, this is the very heart of our piety, is it not? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. At the very heart of who we are as Christians are those who are blown away and who love the Lord and are grateful with wonder to him that the Son of God has died and he did so willingly. He died for me. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A wonder of wonders is the greatest thing we'll ever hear. Okay, thank you, Chuck. Next one. Now, Christ, by doing this fully, and I'm just working through the items in paragraph 5 of chapter 8. His living a perfect life, he accomplishes obedience for us. He offers a sacrifice in himself so as fully to satisfy divine justice. That is what he did. Now, you go, we don't really like, America doesn't like the idea of retributive justice. Yeah, but God does. And and we're wrong. There is such a thing as guilt. See, we don't like the the term guilt because that means sin. If there's guilt, there's an objective standard. And so we don't really punish people that much anymore. Everything's rehabilitation. I'm not completely opposed to rehabilitation. But the idea of punishment is right. And, And I tell you what, you look at victims of sins. And they feel the rightness of punishment. And it's frustrating to them when there's not punishment. Well, God, the holy God, is unashamed to say that his glory demands justice, that is retribution for the sin. And he practices that. And Christ, therefore, offered himself up unto God because the debt we owe is we owe to God. 
We owe a debt of, of justice to God. God's justice is offended. We have transgressed that law, and we owe a debt of justice. Therefore, he died to satisfy that justice. Now, here's where we're going to get to these terms. Uh, because we, we speak of the active obedience of Christ. You know, how does Christ save us? By his active obedience, which is his fulfilling the law perfectly all, the, all of his life. And then his passive obedience, with his obedience to God and dying on the cross. Now, people object to the term passive because it seems second rate. Well, well, see, passion actually doesn't mean, it means suffering. It's his suffering obedience. But because people don't like the term passive obedience, because it's not, Jesus wasn't just, it wasn't just happening to him. That's really not what's meant by passive obedience. But you're getting more now, his general obedience, but then his specific obedience. His suffering obedience was to offer himself to receive the curse and wrath of God on the cross in order to satisfy God's justice against us. Now, when I sit on the examinations committee um, of our presbyteries, a question I always ask, and I won't tell you how infrequently this is answered on the first time, but um, and I say, look, the, the Bible has terminology for the atoning work of the Lord Jesus. And I, I think that ministers need to know this. In fact, I think that you need to know it. And there's biblical terminology for what did Christ achieve with respect to divine justice by his death on the cross. And there's four words. The first I mentioned earlier is expiation. The blood of Christ cleanses us. It's the removal of sin from the sinner. Uh, The word atonement means to cover. But the atoning work of Christ is that kind of cover that when you lift it up, the stain is gone. It's a stain remover. You say, how how did my sin, how am I cleansed of my sin? By imputation. My sin is is imputed, it is transferred judicially to the Lord Jesus Christ in the saving economy of God. And I bear it no more in the language of the hymn. And so I, when Christ died for you, he was expiating your sin. And this is where you get the language, what God calls clean, let us not call unclean. And so you may get somebody who's a scandalous sinner. Maybe they were a prostitute. Maybe they were an abortion doctor. And they become, and they're, and they're saved. How are we going to treat them when they come to church as a Christian? Not as what they were. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. Not because you say, I know that, that person's sin I can't forgive. Well, Christ has forgiven. If Christ has forgiven it, what God has made clean, Acts 10, let man call, not call unclean. And, and see, this enables us to actually deal with sin. Now, of course, this implies that there's repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But where there's repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus God's Son expiates. It cleanses our sin. And so we're able to be washed clean of our sin. Thank the Lord for expiation. There are some of you tonight who need to think more about expiation. Because there's a sense of guiltiness, of unworthiness, of shame. Of course, Christ, there's a reason why Jesus was crucified naked. Because he was bearing not only your guilt, but your shame. And your shame has been taken from you to Jesus. And now you are not shamed. You have been washed. Oh, the value. This is why Hebrews 9 says, it's a spiritual work of Christ's death. 
He applies it to our consciences. Oh, I pray for any of you who are afflicted by a sense of unworthiness that the atoning work of Christ, the expiating work of Christ, would, would by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of God by which he offered himself up, Hebrews 9.14, that he would cleanse your conscience and you just do not feel dirty as a Christian because you, that your sin has been expiated. Now, I hope we know the term propitiation. Propitiation means to avert the wrath of God. The wrath of God was directed towards the sinner, but it has been turned from the sinner and onto Christ himself. You go, why isn't God wrathful towards me? Because Christ is the propitiation. The wrath of God has fallen on him instead of me. Now, uh, someone wrote an article a few years ago complaining about, you may know, that even among evangelicals, these doctrines are going out of favor. And someone wrote an article saying, you're turning Christianity into like the, the Incas. You know, all those Inca and Mayan sacrifices were guilt offerings. They had a tremendous... If you go to Trujillo, our missions team there, and you go to the, the Temple of the Moon, it's a, it's a moche, pre-Incan thing. And uh, there's all these paintings, 1,200-year-old paintings of angry deities, and then they were, taking, they were doing human sacrifice. And they're saying, you're turning biblical religion into that. But God won't forgive until there's been a human sacrifice. What they forget is that God became human so human so that he would make the sacrifice. They forget one thing, as, was, as Anselm of Canterbury said, I want to say to such people, you fail to consider the exceeding gravity of sin. Sin is not a big deal to us. Well, God does not apologize. It is a big deal to him. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But here's the difference. Biblical propitiation is Romans 3.25. Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation to be received through faith. God himself made the sacrifice in the, pers- in the in his second, second person of the Godhead in his incarnate form. Uh, and there's a redemption. The price has been paid. We are set free from the bondage and the guilt. And then there's a reconciliation as a result. We are restored to the Father, to his love, to his blessing. Why? Because Jesus has offered up himself to satisfy the justice of God. Uh, This changes everything about how we view ourselves. This is the very heart of our gospel. Now, I have down there John 19.30, Jesus cries on the cross, it is finished. And you've heard me say it before. The Greek for it is finished is tetelestai. And tetelestai in the ancient Greek world also meant paid in full. In fact, that we found numerous documents from right around that time where there's a bill of lading and it's stamped tetelestai, paid in full. And, so, and Jesus, when he says it is finished, once for all, the debt of your sin to the justice of God has been paid. The debt is paid. His atoning work is finished. Praise the Lord. Now this means then that God's justice now is satisfied with you. Now I want to make a point here. Because most Christians, I think, many Christians, you know, we love God's grace, but the whole justice of God makes us nervous. It's Martin, pre-converted Martin Luther. You know, the justice of God is, is bad news, not good news, because it's perfect justice. I'm a transgressor. The justice of God must inflict me. Ah, 
But not when your sin has been removed, your debt has been paid, you hold the receipt in your hand in the form of faith, and more than that, the active obedience of Christ is imputed to you through faith alone. Now, my friends, when you get to heaven, it will not just be the grace of God that offers you to come in. It will be the justice of God that demands your justification. The, the, the justice of, the, of heaven will demand your admission. Why? Because the full obedience, the full satisfaction of divine justice has been met on your behalf by your mediator and his, his righteousness is imputed to you and there is no sin for you to be considered. If someone goes, oh no, here comes a sinner. But that, that sinner comes in Christ, comes and stands before the law of God. The law goes, I see no sin. I see no stain. I see no record. My, it, 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 in Hebrews 12, there's a line that talks about the saints in heaven. It says, the spirit of the just made perfect. Those people whom heaven will declare you just, the justice of God will demand your reward. So it blows my mind. It's so wonderful. And so Christ died. Here's our prepositions. Christ died for us. We are redeemed in him. That's the very heart of our gospel. Thank you, Chuck. Next one. That was a long slide. We'll see how I get, where I get. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there, though. Christ also, by his death on the cross, secured our eternal inheritance. And this follows. I just have a few verses here. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. But the first part is what I want to emphasize. Part of God's election, if the elect of God are elected to be heirs of glory. And, and we are those all in Christ. It's in him. We are heirs of the eternal glory. Now here's the sad part. We're so caught up in the world, and the world's got its charms. But we're, we're, we're now here's where C.S. Lewis was good. We're like a child who doesn't want to go to the beach because he's enjoying playing with mud cakes in the street. Uh, no, no, these little mud cakes we live in now are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. We should be thinking of heaven. We should be living for heaven. Our home is in, is, is in an eternal inheritance. Uh, if children, then heirs, Paul said heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Then he says, provided we suffer with him, of course. Um, uh, we are heir- Christ is the heir of the eternal glory, and we are his co-heirs. I, I think of that line in Hebrews 2 all the time. I forget the verse where it says, here am I and the children God has given me. And that's you and me. We're in the great host. And there's our Lord Jesus. And it's all, he, he is the one as our mediator, as our covenant head, who has secured it all. And he, 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 all of this is designed to bring us into the eternal glory. Our salvation is a means to that end. Uh, then the king, well, this is, this is Jesus teaching about the final judgment. Uh, that very important chapter in Matthew 25, this is verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
See, God's election is going to work itself out redemptively over time. But Jesus, when we get, when we stand before the Lord Jesus in Him on the, in the last judgment, we're not just let off the hook. Okay, well, you know, you're going to go away, but you won't have to go to hell. No, no, no. We're gathered into the eternal glory. And you think of what Jesus said in John 14. I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you also may be. And I have here Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city. This is how we should think about it. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What does it mean that we will be heirs, co-heirs with Christ? Well, it's a woman who marries into a, into a fortune. And she, now they're one and they share that life together. And we are together. We are justified. We're cleansed. We're forgiven. We're also made holy. And history is going to end with the redeemed. This is a metaphor, but what a metaphor it is. And we will be like a bride presented in love. The marriage is a, is a relationship designed for mutual sharing in love. We will share in the eternal glory. And I have a statement here from Robert Shaw. Christ not only delivered us from condemnation, but he perfectly fulfilled the law's precept to procure for us a title to the eternal inheritance. You know, it, it strikes me, just speaking here now, this is one reason why we care about missions, for instance. Uh, that church in Oxford and, the, and all the other churches, we have the privilege, there's so many other good ones, uh, to support. This is part of the eternal inheritance. These are those we're going to spend glory with. You, have, you, may have, you may have tons in common with a non-Christian. You may be a family member. You may cheer for the same team. You may have been to school together. And I, I don't want to denigrate the blessing of all that. You have so much more in common with a believer in Christ in, with whom you may otherwise have nothing else in common. Um, and we're to love each other. And it, one of the things that John said when we were studying First John is when you're born again, there's an instinct towards fellow believers. We have a love for fellow believers. Why? Because we're together the bride of Christ. We are mutually invested in one another. We have an interest in one another. It's exciting to see those saints gathered in that in St. Stephen's Chapel. It's a lovely little building in Oxford. And those are our brothers and sisters. And we are going to share glory together. All right. Thank you. Next slide. I'm going to stop there we got 10 minutes to go. Uh, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I, I'll wrap it up this way. I, I sometimes put it this way. Uh, Socrates died for a principle. And we, to this day, we remember him. If you, who knows what was the name of the principle for which Socrates died? Tacit consent was the name of the principle. You know, he was unjustly being put to death, but he said, you know, all my life I've enjoyed the benefits of Athenian society, and even though Athens wronged, I've tacitly consented, and therefore, as a good citizen, I will drink to hemlock. And we go, oh, there's a principled guy. He died for a principle and a cause. And a cause. That, that, that's really honorable. Then there's Nathan Hale. My only regret is I have only but one life to give for my country. Do they still teach school children about Nathan Hale? When I was in school, we learned patriotic things. Uh, and he was a spy for George Washington, who was caught by the British in New York City. And when they were hanging him, he said, my only regret is I have but one life to give for my country. Now, there's a guy who died for our cause. 
When it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have far more than that. He not, yes, he died for a principle. Yes, he died for a cause. But the Christian can say with perfect accuracy, he died for me. He died for me. You sometimes may hear me. I like to say it on communions when I'm praying. Lord, he died for us. May we live for him. Uh, that changes everything about who I am. It changes my eternal destiny. He loved me and he gave himself for me. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that this has been helpful in terms of categories. I know I have to go through it rather quickly. Uh, but Lord, I, we want to think biblically and marvel at, at what Christ has done for us. And Father, I pray that we would remember the active obedience of Christ that we are clothed by imputed righteousness. In an act of obedience, your justice puts a stamp of approval on us in him. And Father, we think of the sacrifice he made for us to your justice, and he satisfied all justice, that he might set us free from the guilt and bondage of sin. And again, I pray, Lord, that you would relieve our consciences of the sense of stain, Christ having cleansed us by his blood. And Father, we are then told that we are heirs of the eternal glory. Help us to be heartened by that when times are hard. We think of brothers and sisters. Oh, we think of our brothers and sisters in China today under that surveillance state and the hatred going against them and their suffering. We think of uh, our, our, our friends in, in uh, uh, Joss, Nigeria, where they're being murdered and blown up for Jesus' sake. We can point to so many places around the world Cause them to realize, as your people have done all these centuries, that our home is in a land above and that we are heirs of an eternal glory. And whatever happens to us now in Christ, we cannot lose eternity. And we think of what Jim Elliot said, that we are not fools then, Lord, if we give what we cannot keep in order to gain what we can never lose. And what we, if we have your son, Lord, we have etern eternal life. Well, encourage us by these things. Cause us to live with an eternal perspective. And bless all those who hear this. In Jesus' name, amen.